Buongiorno, buonasera, salve, and benvenuti to the Salento Files. I'm your host, Margot Ferracci, and this is episode 9. I hope you enjoy listening. It'll take about 20 minutes. So I think I'm kind of bilingual. There's Nunziana, an old lady who shuffles around the piazza outside our school, muttering to herself. In January, I started saying hello, how are you, to her, and I could never understand a word of what she said back to me. In May, it was the same. This morning, though, in September, I said, good morning, how are you, as usual, and without even trying, I understood her answer. I'm well, thanks to our good Lord, but this wind could just about effing kill me today. I suppose it's what happens when you're immersed in a place, but you don't feel it happening. One minute you're paying someone 30 euros instead of 13, and the next you're deconstructing Dante and analysing his feminist importance. Well, not quite, because I'm not fully bilingual, just kind of. You see, I adore passionately and without reservation the wonderful myriad ways in which I can use the English language. Language used properly can make or break you, and that's why I love it. But I don't have that proficiency in Italian. I'm conversational, but I can't use nuance like I can in English, so my language is kind of infantile and limited. And I've often wondered in all of this, how do I come across? In English, I have a choice about how I want to come across, and I exercise my choice judiciously. In contrast, I am not linguistically nimble in Italian. Same words, same way for every audience. Constrained and frustrated, I occupy a world where my ability to understand and express myself exists, but only exists. And I wonder what that means for my various audiences. With all the people I've dealt with here in the Salento, in all the different conversations I've had, I'm pretty certain that none of those people ever said to someone else, Hey, it sounds like you need some help getting out of that sticky situation. You know what? I've got just the person. That Australian lady, La Signora Margot, she really nails a negotiation. If you want to win, get her at the table, but make sure she's on your side. And if the other side has already got her, give in immediately, because she will shame you with her superior language and disgrace you with her verbal agility. No, that's never happened. I can tell you what has happened, though. Mistake after mistake, after humiliation, after faux pas. Back in February, one of the very hard-working sisters from school was feeling unwell. In an effort to show compassion, I tried to encourage her to rest. I wanted to say, Deve riposare, you should rest. But instead, I said, Deve risposare, you should remarry. In our Anglo-Celtic culture, this nun probably would have let it slide. But in southern Italy, you don't let anything slide. Her eyes flicked up to meet mine. She threw her ring finger into my face and snapped, I don't need to remarry, I'm married to Jesu. Whoa. Another time, I finally decided to respond to the unending question of, what do you do all day? From one of the teachers at school. I played a minute or so of an episode from the Salento Files. Now this lady speaks no English at all. She's only ever heard me speak in Italian. So all she could get from what I played her really was my intonation and speed. After listening to my voice on the podcast for about a minute, the first thing she said was, Wow, you sound like an adult.
that's the thing. I've often suspected the most worthless of all anxieties is the worry about what other people think of you. Be good, yes, treat other people well, and mark yourself to high standards on that front. But what they actually think of you, well, that's a matter for them. What other people think of you is really none of your business. And you can't do much to influence either. Their view of you is as much about their circumstances as your behaviour. As the song goes, you never know how you look through other people's eyes. And I've been grateful for the lessons learned already about that feeling. It's something we grapple with in the way we live our lives generally. We all get told as we grow up and discover peer pressure not to worry about what other people think and to be ourselves. But then you start work and you realise that if you want your work to be recognised, you have to build a profile, guard your brand. In other words, you have to spend a lot of time worrying about what the rest of your circle thinks of you. Of course, it's really noble to do a good job and not seek any recognition for it. But few of us are interested in being noble and poor. Imagine being a politician, I always think. Every moment of your existence is spent thinking about your profile, how you're coming across, how you look through other people's eyes. If you want to get elected, you have to be consumed by that. The thing about building your personal profile or defining your brand becomes as consuming, if not more, as the work you're actually doing. And there are those who are fully themselves, boldly, and in a way that ultimately is admired. It can be a lonely course, but one that provides the satisfaction of knowing that you have been your true self. We all know people around us like that. I think they provide great examples of how to live. The 16th century Italian physicist Galileo claimed that the Earth actually moves, and what's more, it moves around the Sun. This claim directly contradicted the Catholic Church's interpretation of the Bible. For his declarations, Galileo was convicted of heresy by the Church, and he lived out his years under house arrest. Hundreds of years later, though, his single-mindedness in defiance of the established powers earned him two great honours. Firstly, great minds like Einstein and Hawking have called him the father of modern science. Secondly, he is preserved for all eternity on our radios through the voice of Freddie Mercury. Thankfully, Galileo was never too worried about building his personal profile with key decision-makers. It's probable that his next-door neighbour or his barber never imagined this committed heretic as the founder of modern science. In fact, that may have been exactly the last image they had of him. It may often be an isolated path for those who have the single-mindedness to be unconcerned about what other people think. One man's terrorist may indeed be another man's freedom fighter. History, depending on who writes it generally, dictates who ends up in which category. I often wonder what our grandchildren will be taught about the likes of Julian Assange. Now, my family and I are not transforming the way the world thinks of itself here. And I present no immediate threat to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Mind you, that could change very quickly if Eve keeps coming home from school saying, Sister Geraldina says that if I'm bad, Jesu won't come into my heart. Worrying about how we come across within our little community here, though, has been something of a constant family theme this year. The kids have felt like out-and-out dancers at school. But everyone is looking at me and thinks I'm stupid, is a common complaint from them. The two who are usually occupying the extremely comfortable end of the social skills spectrum. 
For a while there, Charlie used to take his deck of UNO cards to school so he could play by himself and pretend to be totally absorbed in his solitude. He didn't want the other kids to know he was lonely and that he couldn't understand what was going on. He wanted them to think he was playing alone as a choice. And while they're now pretty much integrated, there's still a lot that goes on at school that they don't understand. They'll come home frustrated and embarrassed that they wouldn't do the work the other kids were doing, just through sheer lack of vocabulary. So we've had to talk each other into being resolute this year. We've had to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter how silly we sound. What matters is that we're having a go. And it's worth it. Because if you can get past what people think of you, there is something meravigliosa, marvellous, to be discovered. For me, having an insight, this much insight, into another language, when you are living in the country of that language, is really, and I have no other way to express this, really cool. I can eavesdrop. The giovanotti, the teenage boys at the beach, call each other bello, beautiful, when addressing each other. In fact, the Italian men's water polo team is called the Sette Bello, the beautiful seven, by men and women commentators alike. I'm in a taxi and the driver calls out to some kids on their bikes to get off the road, abusing them as he does. One kid looks over his shoulder, shrugs and says, Suora, right in the driver's face. Suora is a word for sister. What that kid is saying is... In response to your suggestion, Mr. Cab Driver, that I move to the footpath, I'm suggesting I will do something offensive to your sister. The taxi driver grumbles about cutting off the kid's penis and drives on. My best friend visits from Australia. A young bloke watches us on the street as we embrace regretfully as she departs. And then he turns to me and says tenderly, Partire è sempre un poco morire. To leave is always to die a little. I mean, imagine not understanding all of that. And in terms of understanding the local language, I think we picked the hardest nut to crack. The further north through Italy you go, the easier they are to understand. But down here in the Salento, they really talk with a mouth full of marbles. Or at least, that's how it seems to me. Further complicating things is the fact that local dialect is a huge influence on language. Dialects in Italy are not derived from the Italian language. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Dialects are local languages formed over hundreds of years via infiltration of outside influence, local characteristics and natural evolution. On the other hand, the Italian language was created more recently by scholars and governments who were keen that this new unified country should have a singular language. They used the Florentine dialect, which had been standardised by Dante many centuries before to construct this single Italian language, and it was used mostly for official documents and newspapers. And it was pretty much ignored by the inhabitants of this new country called Italy, who went on speaking what they'd always been speaking, local dialect. The local dialect we have in the Salento, and there are a few depending on which part of the Salento you are in, derives more from Greek, Turkish and Arabic than from pure Italian. And in a place as remote as we are, the word on the street is dialect, not Italian. To give you an example, lui means he or him in Italian. In local dialect, lui becomes idro. See? That's nothing like it. You couldn't even guess that. 
Dialect is still so common here that often children will front up for their first year of primary school and not actually speak any Italian, only dialect. The teachers have a pretty hard time trying to change that. I'll tell you for free that Otrantino or even Lecceze dialect wasn't a huge part of the syllabus at the Australian National University in their Italian language course in the 1990s. And while we're on formal language courses, let's acknowledge that they really just teach you the words. The problem is that here, words are often superfluous and at best an augmentation to the great theatre of expression. It ain't what you say, it's the way that you say it. Our kids, who have learnt their Italian in situ, invoke the Salento cadence in their sentences, which gives the distinct impression that they are always whinging. Even if they are saying something very innocuous, like Andiamo alla villa, let's go to the playground, they will say it like this, Andiamo alla villa! Yes, grating, but probably more, no more so than your average geezer with his shirt off at Coogee and the accent that he might have. And far better, in the local estimation, than my schoolbook Italian with my Australian accent. Even with the right accent, though, it's not enough to get your point across. You have to exclaim, lament, laugh. You have to act. Orson Welles is credited with the remark that Italy is full of actors, 70 million of them in fact, and they are almost all good. There are only a few bad ones, and they are on the stage and in films. At soccer training, a little boy misses a shot at goal and drops to his knees, hands in the prayer position, and screams at the heavens for God's help. Dear God, why aren't you helping me? What do I have to do to kick a goal? That six-year-old boy was a spectacle to us in March. Now in September, that six-year-old boy is our son. And then even with the accent, the passion, the dialect and all the touching you do when you talk, you will still make a fool of yourself if you don't master perhaps the most critical part of local communication, the gestures. You may have read or heard of the seminal work on Italy and its culture called The Italians by Luigi Barzini. It was written a long time ago, but it's very relevant still today. For a proper explanation on the importance of gestures, I cannot provide you with any better than that from Barzini, and I quote, Italian gestures are justly famous. They emphasise or clarify whatever is said to suggest words and meanings it is not prudent to express with words, sometimes simply to convey a message at great distance. The lifting of one eyebrow means, I'm ready to take what decisions may be necessary. A slowly raised chin means, I don't know. Or more often, perhaps I know, but I will not tell you. It is the answer policemen would always get in Sicily when questioning possible witnesses of a mafia killing, which took place in front of hundreds of people in a busy market square. End of quote. So you can see, the gestures are not there to add to a conversation. Often they actually are the conversation. The one I love the most is the one I see all the time in hundreds of different situations, and it demonstrates efficiently the culture here. And to explain it best, I will for the last time call on Signora Barzini again to describe a perfect example. And I quote, Imagine two gentlemen sitting at a cafe table. The first is explaining at great length some intricate question which interests him. He may be saying, 
This continent of ours, Europe, old, decrepit Europe, all divided into different nations, each nation subdivided into provinces, each nation in each province living its own petty life, speaking its incomprehensible dialect, nurturing its ideas, prejudices, defects, hatreds, each of us gloating over the memories of the defeats inflicted on us. How easy life would become if we were to fuse into one whole Europe, the Christendom of old, and why not? The second gentleman is listening patiently, looking intently at the first man's face. At a certain moment, as if overwhelmed by the abundance of his friend's arguments or the facility of his optimism, he slowly lifts one hand, perpendicularly, in a straight line from the table as far as it will go higher than his head. Meanwhile, he utters only one sound, a prolonged, like a sigh. His eyes never leave the other man's face. His expression is placed, slightly tired, vaguely incredulous. And with that one gesture, this is what he's saying. How quickly you rush to conclusions, my friend. How complicated your reasoning. How unreasonable your hopes. When we all know the world has always been the same and all bright solutions to our problems have in turn produced more and different problems, more serious and unbearable than the ones we were accustomed to. End quote. I see this every day. I call it the resignation salute. And may God help us all if I ever start using it myself. So you can see there's a lot we need to do before we can communicate like locals. And it has been an uphill run to get to this point. But I'm glad for all of us that we've kept running and running, even though most of the time we've felt like complete dills. For the children, they know that in being their full selves, they are different to their peers. And now, that very fact is no longer a source of shame, but a source of pride. And I hope this experience allows them some empathy too in years to come with other people who are a bit different. In this new soccer season, Eve has made her debut at the Artranto Scuola di Calcio, that is, the local club. We arrived for the first training session a few weeks ago. It was good to see the big kids from school all there at training again. They're all about nine or ten years old, but have somehow formed a fascination with our children. They crowded around us as usual. Charlie's got new boots, they noted, and passed them around for inspection and approval. Then they saw Evie's new boots and watched, amazed, as she started putting them on. Is she playing as well? they said to me. Yes, I said. I heard there's a team for four and five-year-olds, so I thought we might see if she can get in it. There is, there is! they said. She's playing. That's so cool. Without realising it, we were breaking new ground. Eve is the only girl player in the whole club. The boys were fascinated. They crowded around her, asking all kinds of questions about whether she loves soccer and how much she's played before and does she want to be good like the boys. Eve just went right on putting her boots on with her head down. It seemed as if she was ignoring them all, difficult as that might have been as they engulfed her. In the past, that would have meant that she wasn't really understanding them or she was feeling very self-conscious and could come undone at any point. Like so many times in the past, I sat back and waited for her to ask for my help if it all became too much. But now, after 10 months, things have changed. Eventually, she calmly put her head up to the surrounding boys with her little girl's piggy tail at the back, bouncing around as she addressed them straight in the eye. Io sono troppo veloce, lo sai? I'm really fast, you know. 
at the beach this week, Charlie was playing with one of those same big kids, Matteo. Matteo came up to Mitch and asked him something. Mitch gestured that, sorry mate, don't understand. Matteo, to his eternal credit, and we have to remember he's only nine years old, tried very patiently two more times to talk to Mitch. In the end, Mitch called Charlie in to translate. Charlie was on to it instantly. Matteo just wants to know if we can stay at the beach and play a bit longer. Mitch nodded profusely with lots of see, see, and the boys hugged in celebration. And really, Mitch has been the leader in all of this. I married a man who spends exactly no time worrying about how he looks through other people's eyes. He's been frustrated that he can't have a proper conversation, of course. He has felt isolated, but he has been free, absolutely, from any hint of self-consciousness. He's just dived in and done his best. No profile building, no brand management, just raw, and some would say very Australian, having a go. Which may not get him promoted ahead of his peers in his professional life, but which provides an example to us all in our family on how to live a liberated existence. Mitch is a man without conviction on contentious points of planetary science, and he therefore would not risk life imprisonment to convince you that the Earth moves around the sun. But when that old lady in the square out front of our school laments the cold tramontana, the northerly wind, he nods vigorously and says in English to no one in particular, Oh God, I know it would freeze the balls off a brass monkey, wouldn't it? See you in two weeks. <laughs>